Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we are going to explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. As a CPA for the past 30 years, wait, let me say 25 because that makes me sound younger. I have seen it all when it comes to money and emotions. And if you think I'm talking about my clients, I'm not. I'm talking about myself. My relationship with money has been, and sometimes still is, an emotional roller coaster. Maybe that's something you're also familiar with. Good news. You and I are not the only ones. Our next guest is going to share their money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges as well. Buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the ride. Our next guest is Gramps Jeffrey. Coming from the baby boomer generation, Gramps Jeffrey now has four kids and six grandchildren. Through his children's book, I Don't Want to Turn Three, he explores what goes through a toddler's mind that parents are so desperate to understand. It is based on the true experiences he has had with his grandchildren born to his millennial daughters. He is also the author of the acclaimed business book, The Secrets of Retailing, How to Beat Walmart, and a contributor to the Huffington Post. Gramps' commentary is quite timely in the challenging world we live in. Gramps, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Well, I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks so much. So do any of us want to turn three? <laughs> like, I know I want to go back and get an allowance, but what's the resistance to three? The book is about at what age do you begin to take responsibility for your actions? Right. Is it three years old? Is it 13 years old? Is it 23 years old? You know, as you mentioned, I'm a baby boomer. I've got plenty of 63-year-olds that still don't take responsibility for their actions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what is that hesitation about taking responsibility? Because now we have to act? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. I guess the real reason is, why did I even write this book? <laughs> so I got to tell you, the living this past year because of the pandemic caused by COVID-19, in isolation, except for being able to be with my family, gave me time to kind of watch and interact with these grandkids. And I got to tell you, what a trip that was. So, you know, all six of these kids have completely different personalities. But the one thing they do have in common is a sense of curiosity. Much like us, they all have a sense of curiosity. And how excited they get when they do accomplish something new. You know, watching them grow year to year, how they interact with each other really is the basis for this book. Yeah. And what did you notice in that curiosity and with all six kids? Well, the one thing that they had a trouble understanding is the difference between me and us. When do they begin to share? When do they begin to understand that the world doesn't revolve around them? They've got to get involved with their parents, with their cousins. So that was really the challenge is at three years old, it's all about me, me, me. But hey, right. I got to tell you, I think it's all about me, me, me now. But, <laughs> but back then, it's about that. Ask your wife. It's all about me, me, me. So that really was a journey on how to get there. You know, as a baby boomer, myself trying to understand the world, how it evolved since I was three years old, is also kind of part of this story. My parents, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have cable TV. They didn't have remotes. I was my dad's remote. He says, son, go change the channel. Right. <laughs> That's the way that was. So my parents' definition was quite different than the definition of uh, parents of today. Is this a better place for our kids to grow up in? 
I'll let your listeners kind of figure out that answer. But how are we treating our kids today compared to how they, we did when we were growing up? Did your parents have conscious conversations with you around money or making choice or about this me versus we? Did any of that happen or did you just sort of have to fumble through it on your own? My parents are entrepreneurs, okay? But entrepreneurs, they have great days, they have bad years, but they're entrepreneurs and, you know, they've been entrepreneurs all their lives. So when I went to college, they were going to pay for it. They, you know, they said, you do it. So that, I guess, was our first real conversation about money is, okay. Uh, so I had to take three jobs while I was going to college and to pay for my tuition and room and board and all that. You know, again, this generation, my parents' generation was a very disciplined generation. Mm-hmm. They were the greatest generation this country has ever produced. I mean, if you think about it, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and my, my parents' generation went through the Depression. They went through the major world war that saved democracy. So they were a very disciplined group as a whole. And part of this discipline was you go pay your own way through college. So I guess that was my first encounter with the responsibility of money. Yeah. Now, do you remember as a kid, your parents saying things like money doesn't grow on trees or did they have some kind of phrase, got to do it on your own? As entrepreneurs, they might have had a different take than a traditional nine to fiver. But are there any things you remember that they said or didn't say about money? They were very wanting me to make it on our own. Mm -hmm. And that's why my brother and I did have uh, jobs in high school, too, even though they had enough to pay for us and our house and all that. They really were trying to get that into our minds. Do it on your own. Don't count on anybody else. You can't count on family. You can't, you know, that's the world today. If you're an entrepreneur today, where are you going to get your money? How are you going to open up a business? Can you count on your family? Can you not? You certainly can't count on the banks. Yeah. You know, the banks don't want to lend money to entrepreneurs and startups. So you've always got to count on yourself. That's what you want to think about is how can I build this up? And I think that's one of the reasons why the entrepreneurs of today are starting a little later in life, because they've got to accumulate something before they just go out there. And so it's interesting what's happening to today's world of entrepreneurs. Now, when you were a kid, did you want to be an entrepreneur? Your parents were entrepreneurs. Did you want to write? Like, did you have a vision of what it looked like when you started college or even younger? No, I just wanted to go make money. (laughs) You know, is what is the fastest way to make money? And it happens to be, I went to college in the uh, early 70s. And at that time, that's when retail and department stores were the hottest thing going. And so that's when I got involved in the retailing is I was recruited. I lived in a small town, Ohio, went to school in Miami, Ohio. It was one of those winters where there were like, I got five colds in a row and I said, I got to get out of here. Ugh. And luckily for me, a company in Florida was recruiting a department store company called Burdines which is part of Federated, which is now Macy's. Right. And so that gave me the opportunity to get out and do my own thing and start to make money. So that was really driving me. Now, interesting enough, talk about writing, because I did, I've written a couple of books and I've written over 100 articles for the Huffington Post. But my feeling for writing started when I was a junior in college. My best friend and I decided we were going to backpack through Europe for 11 weeks. So you know, we got our backpacks, we were riding the trains, we were hitchhiking, we were sleeping in youth hostels. But for some reason, I would decided to keep a journal. 
So for 11 weeks, I kept this journal of everything we did and the people we met and, and all these things. And, you know, and then I put it away for a while. And my friend called me 10 years later, he said, you got to read this journal. He says, you got to become a writer. This is really because it was the insight of people and what they did and so forth. So that's how I started to become a writer, but I didn't do it for a while. So I guess that part of creativity I've always wanted to do, but my goal was to make money first. Yeah. Get in there. Let's get some money. And so I spent my first part of my career in corporate America working for major retailers and wholesalers in the country. What would you say is the biggest difference that you're aware of in working for corporate America and working for yourself? I mean, obviously, there's not as much security, but is there security anymore like there used to be? I mean, what did you observe and what would you say to entrepreneurs, people out there that are thinking about taking that leap? The biggest thing, the difference between working for a company and working for yourself is the sleepless nights that you have, okay? Is you stay up at night a lot. What happened was in my particular career, you know, I worked many years for these corporate America. And I said, I went back to my entrepreneurial roots and I decided I'm going to become an entrepreneur. So I opened up a couple of businesses. One of the businesses I opened up was a chain of hair salons. And you say, hair salons? Why do you open up a chain of hair salons? Well, when I was running the downtown Miami Burdines department store, up on our sixth floor was our hair salons. And it was the most profitable part of the business. Wow. And the reason it was so profitable because you didn't have to worry about inventory. And your customers came in once a week or once every couple of weeks. So you had this repeat business and it wasn't based on inventory. It was based on the service. You know, if you're in the dress business, you sell one or two dresses a season. But in the hair business, you sell you know, every month. So... That's what I learned. And that's why my first business was a chain of hair salons. I sold those to investors. At the same time, this was when the internet was just beginning to come up. And I came up with the concept of the wholesale company that could sell to moms and pops who would survive and thrive against the chains. And so that's how my other business, which I took public. And that particular business came about because of my experience of being in department stores and off-price retailing and in the wholesale business. And I saw there was a niche to go after. Now, again, you can't rely on somebody else giving you money to open this up. So you, know, you asked me, the question is, what's the biggest thing is the amount of sleepless nights, because when you're an entrepreneur and you're opening up a business, the thing that kept me up the most was how am I going to make payroll on a Friday? Right. That was the number one thing that kept me up. But once you start to roll, you can start to make payroll, then it's a whole different world. Well, let me ask you this. So I recently read a book called Outliers, and it talks about being in the right place at the right time. You know, Bill Gates, smart guy, right place, right time. And I'm wondering, like for you, you took a company public, you sold off your first businesses to investors. Were you in the right place at the right time? You're a little smarter than everybody else. And so you've got the edge or... What was the combination? Because if I'm an entrepreneur, gee, and I'm not that, I'm good and I'll work hard, but maybe I don't have the smarts that somebody else does. Maybe it's not for me. I don't know if you believe in fate, but over the years, I'm starting to believe in fate. I start off when I was young. I went to school in Ohio. I was expected to fall, you know, end up in Ohio, but I caught a break and got a job in Florida. They got me into this. I mean, that wasn't planned. Right. It wasn't when I was 13 years old, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do with my life. And then the off-price business, the discount stores started to open up, and I was recruited to go into a discount store. 
Again, that's fate. That wasn't something I planned. So I guess the difference between fate and luck, what's really the difference? I ended up out here in Arizona. I mean, when I was 18 years old, I had no idea I would be ending up in Arizona. So it really is, you just got to take the chance and play the fate. Sometimes it doesn't work out. I've been fired from many jobs. (laughs) Sometimes it just doesn't work out. But you just got to believe in yourself. An entrepreneur really believes that the glass is half full. Right. That you fail today, but tomorrow you're going to bounce back. If you go in with the idea that the glass is half empty, then you're going to fail. You got to take a look at all the numbers for entrepreneurs. 20% fail in their first year. Right. Okay. Why do they fail? Well, there's several reasons why they fail. One reason is the one we were talking about is that they just don't have enough capital. Whenever you open a business or you're thinking about business, you're opening a business, make sure that you've got six months of capital that you can put in this business as if you had no sales. That's how you have to look at this. Because one of the 29% of why businesses fail in the first year is they didn't put enough dollars aside. Because again, you're not going to go to the bank. They're not going to give you money all of a sudden. Another reason that businesses fail in the first year is there's no market for their products and right. services. You think you've got the greatest idea since sliced bread. Well, there's no market for it. Nobody's buying it. That's another reason why businesses fail. That's like 42% of the reason wow. why businesses fail. And the other thing, the quiet thing that most people don't understand, and it's like 23% of the reason why small businesses fail in their first year, is you got to build a team around you to help build this business. We all think that we know it all. And that's not true. We all have plenty of blind spots. Take a look at my blind spots. I love marketing and sales, but I really don't like accounting. (laughs) If you stick me in a room for a week having to do accounting and spreadsheets, I will go absolutely nuts. Yeah. So you've got to find somebody who loves accounting, who loves to do that, to complement what you're doing. As much as I've been in the internet business, so I should understand artwork and so forth. I understand it. I can't even draw a straight line. So you got to find people who are designed around you, who can help you with that. And again, you're in that business, you think I understand programming. I don't know how to program. I'm going <laughs> to find people that can do that. So one of the things you know, that you got to realize, and this is one of the main reasons the businesses fail, is you can't do it all yourself. You've got to find the experts so that you can take the hours of your life and put them into the skills that you have that can help drive that business. And so if I have one advice for anybody wanting to start a business tomorrow is make sure you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you are. Yeah, absolutely. And what about having a plan? In other words, like I know some people will say, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to become a social media influencer. I'm just going to do it. People are going to come to me and I'm going to make millions of dollars. That's my business plan. Or I'm just going to start selling it don't really know who my market is, but I'm just going to start doing it. How important is having some kind of business plan, even if it ultimately doesn't go exactly to plan, which it never does? Well, let me say that I still think today, if you're an entrepreneur or small business person, this is the best time in the history of this country to open up a business. And the reason being is, and we'll take a look, you know, we're talking about retailing on my side. But 20 years ago, you had to go get a physical store. You had to put money into the inventory. You had to hire people. There's a lot of expenses involved with that. Yeah. But in today's world, with the beauty of the internet, and if you have lived in small town America, 
your customer base was 100, 200,000 people. That was your customer base. Right. What's evolved with this internet? And it gives a chance for anyone who has an idea or a feeling to start to sell products without having to come up with the big dollars to open up a store and buy lots of inventory and hire lots of people. So if you're an entrepreneur, this is the time to do it. Because now, instead of having your small town or your big town as your only source, you now have thousands of other towns to sell into. And if you've got the right niche product, all you need is 10 people in a town to like it. It adds up very quickly. So if anyone's thinking about opening a business, do it, but make sure that there's an internet part of that business as part of your plan. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm curious. I want to go back to the second part about not having a market, not having somebody that wants to buy your product. I knew these people that they were engineers. They discovered this salt business over in Hawaii. And they said, you know what? We're going to turn this into a multi-million dollar business. We're going to sell gourmet salt. We're going to sell salt to spas and stuff. They were setting everything up and they had a million dollars. They got these people to put in a million bucks and they had the most amazing accounting system and they secured a deal with FedEx and they, and I kept saying, before you spend all this money, like get some sales because then we can go back and fix the accounting and then we can go back and do this stuff. They're like, they were engineers. You know, we have everything ready. And then they got ready to launch. They didn't have any sales. Not a single person bought anything. And how do you test the market? Like, how do you, hey, does anybody want to buy salt? Like, how do you get there without spending millions of dollars before you go all the way down the road? Well, what you just mentioned is the prime example of what we were just talking about. You got to hire people around you that have these strengths that you don't. Before they even started this business, knowing that they weren't sales and marketing kind of guys, they should have found someone just to do that. And that's why, that's one of the reasons, again, that's why so many of us fail is we don't surround ourselves with those people. So that was their first mistake is find someone who loves sales and marketing. And much like you have a passion for podcasting, you have to have a passion for what you do. You know, if you don't have that passion, then you're going to fail. And there's not even a statistic for that. (laughs) The statistic of passion versus not passion. So you've got to find that person. Then you've got to test it. You're absolutely right. You always want to test before you roll out and spend the dollars. And you can test. You can test in one town. You can test in one state. You can test on the internet. I mean, again, that's what the internet is so great for this. Our latest group of people, of entrepreneurs, is you can test stuff on there. I mean, you can test it just by putting goods on Amazon or Etsy or any of the uh, discount sites. You can test things. And so that's what you've got to do. And that's, you know, not that I want to keep going back to my children's book. But this generation coming up, these kids that are one to 10 years old, they are going to be the best generation this country has ever produced. Because as soon as they come out of the womb, they're exposed to the internet. Right. They're exposed to iPhones. They're exposed to all kinds of information. You know, I wasn't exposed to the internet. I was 40 years old. These kids are growing up that way. Yeah. It's a whole different world. And they can take what they're learning now You know, this is another reason why I wrote this book is because we as parents and we as grandparents have got to balance what these kids are learning so quickly from the internet and from all these electronic things with real life. We're the ones that have to give them the different skills that they have so they can become the greatest generation ever. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I was just thinking as you were talking, there's a quote that I've heard, and I don't know how true this is for you. 
But the reason that grandkids and grandparents get along so well is they have a common enemy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you've ever heard that. (laughs) That's interesting. The reason I think that's so interesting is that 30% of the grandparents today, that's almost one out of every three, don't want to get involved in raising their grandkids. Wow. And they have a special name for these grandparents. They're called remotes. And they may show up on a birthday or come through the holidays, but they really don't want to get involved in it. And one of the reasons that they don't is there is conflict between the parent and the grandparent. Mm. That's just one of those reasons. But when you think about it, think about the way that we can influence these kids. Let's just talk about getting these kids involved in reading. Okay. Think about it with these kids. There's all kinds of benefits that, and again, I'm going to look at it from a grandparent standpoint. I'm with my grandkids and getting them on my lap and I'm reading a book and they're reading together. And the one thing that happens is reading together for 20 minutes creates bonding. Right. Bonding is so important for these little kids. They have to have that relationship with the grandparent and the parent. So reading to kids, just one of the things it does is it creates bonding. Another thing that it does, and this is very important, and it's something that I encourage all of your listeners to make sure they're reading books to their kids every single night, is that it supports listening skills. Now, you and I both know that the most important skill that we have acquired is how to listen. Right. You know, you're doing it here on your podcast. And you think about when you're listening in business, be able to listen to sell things. You've got to be able to listen to communicate. If we can teach these kids through reading how to listen, because they're there listening to this book for 20 minutes, that could be one of the legacies that we could give to these kids that'll pay off for them when they hit our age. Another reason we should be reading books to all these kids is because of the cognitive and the language development that it creates. You know, these little kids, there's all kinds of words in these books that you should be able to explain to your children. Again, it's a learning process. I mean, there's words in these books I don't understand, so I'm going to go look them up. So it's another way for all of us to kind of create the cognitive and language development. And another reason is just the attention span it creates for 20 minutes. You know, little kids, two, three, four, they bounce off the wall all day long. You get them in your lap for 20 minutes, and it helps with a key concentration and self-discipline. And those are the traits that they're going to need to do as they grow up, whether they become entrepreneurs or just go to work for someone. And you've got to have those traits. So I would just encourage all of your listeners, make sure you're reading books. There's a hundred great books out there to read to your kids. Obviously, I want to read my book, but there's a lot of other books too. And so just read to your kids. It'll pay off. That'll help balance out all this great stuff they're learning off of the internet and their iPhones. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the ability to read and The fact that just through reading, you can take incredible journeys, you can have incredible experiences, you can go to foreign countries, all these things that you wouldn't get if you didn't have access to great books and a little bit of imagination. One of the most important things that reading does, it helps with us to begin questioning. We as adults, keep in mind, it's necessary for us to teach children how to think, not what to think. Okay, we need to teach them how to think. So again, going back to reading books for, you know, obviously I recommend having the child pick out the book because it become really involved with it. But once you have the book and they're on your lap, the first thing you should ask the kid was, you know, what do you think is going to happen in this book? Let them start with that imagination. Because again, mm. we want to teach them how to think. And then once you're reading in the book, who are the characters in the book? What are the settings of this book? Does anything in this book sound familiar to you? Keep questioning. 
Because by questioning, you know, again, we're going to teach them how to think. And then at the end of the book, much like you should be doing every night at dinner, uh, when you ask them how their day was, was what was your favorite part of this book? Why was it your favorite part? Because again, the more we can sit down and teach our children how to think, the better they're going to be when they reach our age. That is so awesomely true. I love that. I love that there's such an intentionality and a consciousness to like reading the book and asking the questions. It's simple and straightforward, and there's a reason for it. It's not just like, ah, what'd you think of the book? It's actually creating a skill set for the kids as well as the bonding. And I love that piece. Again, curiosity is what helps us to think more. Oh, and then what might happen? Oh, and oh, and here's, I liked it because there was a puppy or whatever it might be that we can then feel our excitement and ignite our passion and whatever that might be. So I really love that. Now, I have to ask, you identify your daughters as your millennial daughters. And when you wrote the book about not wanting to be three, what was the thing that you noticed with your millennial daughters that might have been a struggle or something that was a different struggle that you had when you were raising them? It goes back to, we're talking about discipline, Mm -hmm. right? Again, my parents were coming from a whole very disciplined generation because they won the war and they put that on us. And that's one of the reasons they made sure I pay for my own education all that. Very disciplined. But, you know, they were also, as far as discipline is, you know, my brother Larry and I were messed up. My mother would say, where do your dad get home? And then when he came home, he would grab his belt and he would chase us around <laughs> the dining room table. You know, that was their definition of discipline. Yeah. He had this fraternity paddle. And one night when they were out of the house, my brother and I got the fraternity paddle and again, we're up in Ohio and it was the late fall and there's a lot of leaves on the ground. We buried it underneath a pile of leaves and it snowed the next night. And then we came back that spring and it was gone. To me, that was the greatest miracle of ever. <laughs> the paddle was gone. <laughs> so that's how I was disciplined. Now, I didn't discipline my girls that way. Yeah. You know, and my boy, I had four kids. I get three girls and a boy. And so we didn't chase them around the kitchen table with belts. We taught them a little differently with, you know, we talked to them, the whole different kind. But their discipline is even better than ours. I mean, if you take a look at these millennials and how they're disciplining their kids is they stick them in the corner for time out. It works. These little kids, they don't want to be alone in the corner all by themselves or away from all their friends. It works. In fact, the cutest kind of discipline I saw was I was in the daughter of my three-year-old granddaughter, Grace's birthday, and we were in Austin, Texas. I live in the Scottsdale, Arizona. So we flew out for the birthday, and she and her brother is four and a half years old. She's gotten a bunch of trucks for her birthday, and they were starting to fight over the trucks. And she looks over to him, and she says, I need my space. And she gets up, and she walks over to one side of the sofa, and her brother says, I need my space too. And he walks, and he goes to the other side of the sofa. Now, They didn't learn that on the internet. I am sure that their mother got so frustrated with them one day and said, I need my space. And she walks away, but it works. Yeah. It works for them. So they're much smarter than I ever was at that age. (laughs) That's such a great story. Well, Gramps, we are at the Fast Five. And the Fast Five is brought to you by Greenlight, the debit card for kids managed by parents. For more information, you can click on the link in the show notes. Well, Gramps, like, ah, this is so fun because I love both of the areas of expertise that you have. I love this part about the entrepreneurs and all that stuff. And I definitely love hearing about the kids and how we can work to mold kids to be the best versions 
of themselves. But we're going to jump into the Fast Five right now. And if we can just have a little fun and get a little Fast and Furious, sort of see where it goes. Okay. Is there anything you wish you would have done differently in your 20s? I was so focused on being successful in business that I didn't spend enough time with my kids. Yeah. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why a lot of us grandparents are making an effort, even the 70% that are not the ones that don't care about their kids, making an effort to be involved in the lives of their grandkids. Because I miss it. I was traveling around the world for my business. I miss soccer games. I miss graduations. Right. So I guess if I knew what I know now, I would have made a different kind of effort because I was driven by money. Yeah, absolutely. What was the price of gas when you were a teenager? It was a dollar twenty-seven. <laughs> it is not a dollar twenty-seven now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you recall an embarrassing money moment from your childhood? Yeah, when I lent money to what I thought were my good friends, and I never got it back. Ah. So I learned from that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, of all of your grandkids, which one's your favorite? <laughs> I don't have a favorite. <laughs> That's one of the, we're talking about what causes rifts yeah. between parents and grandparents. You know, for grandparent tendency to play favorites and manipulate the siblings, that will get you thrown out of the house faster than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. So I can tell you, I have no favorites. Yeah, that is a true diplomat of a grandparent. So I figured that was the answer, but I had to ask. I had to ask. Is there anything besides taxes? that you really don't like to spend money on? Well, you know, interesting that we are all now approaching worrying about death. You know, we taxes and death, they go hand in hand. When you think about that 16% of the population is over 65 years old, but 75% of the COVID deaths came from that same 65 years and older, we are dropping fast. I heard that the lifespan now is two years less than it was before the pandemic because of this added deaths we're getting. So we start to have to thinking about death. And interestingly enough, my wife was saying, we got to get some plots. <laughs> I said, no, nah, we're too young for that. So that's my next thing about money. All right. Looking for the next neighborhood, <laughs> yeah. a quiet neighborhood with a good view. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're at our M&M moment, our sweet spot, money and motivation. Do you have a practical tip or a piece of wealth wisdom you could share with our listeners, something that worked for you? As soon as you're able to put money into your 401k, do it. No matter what else, what other pressures you have, make sure you start contributing to your 401k. When you're younger, it's very painful. But if you're with a company that matches, you've got to do this. Give up an extra night out with your friends at the dinner. Give that up. Start with your 401k as soon as you are eligible. I think that is such a great piece of advice. And if you're younger and you're making a little bit of a wage in high school, put some money in an IRA. Get started. And it doesn't have to be a million bucks. Thousand bucks, 2,000 bucks. Just get the ball rolling. I couldn't agree more. Well, Gramps, listen, this has been such a fun conversation for me. I really appreciate the information you brought in about entrepreneurs. What I really took away though from this all was this piece about curiosity, all of us getting a little bit more curious and the intentionality of connecting with your grandkids with this intention of teaching them skills, how to listen, 
how to bond. We all could be better listeners. That's probably one of the most important skills out there is the ability to listen, actively listen instead of jumping over everybody else to tell our story or to one-up somebody, but to actually take in what people are saying. And I love that your parents, even though it probably wasn't always fun, were like, figure it out on your own. Don't rely on all these potential possible maybe safety nets, like figure it out and you'll end up landing on your feet. And I think that entrepreneurial spirit is probably what helped you to take chances to go to Florida, to go to Arizona and to take things that you might not have because they wouldn't have worked out or they were beyond your comfort zone. Yeah. You bring up, there's one thing that we can think through for this conversation is creating the curiosity that builds imaginations Yeah, is the one thing we as adults have got to do with these young kids. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I so appreciate that you are out there actively working to better the minds of young kids because that is the future. And the more that they can come into their own with all the tools and support, the better the whole world will be. So I so appreciate what you're doing. Where can people find you on social media and online? Oh, they can buy the book, both books at amazon.com or Barnes and Noble, but a hundred other sites on the internet, or they can come to my site, which is gramsjeffries.com. Or if any of your listeners want to continue this conversation, please reach out to me. My email is gramsjeffrey at gmail.com and we can keep talking. Awesome. Well, we will definitely put that out there and invite everybody to check you out and check out your book. Thanks again for coming on the show. It was just such a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. Blah, blah, blah.